Hey now, thanks for joining us in the 3DL for US podcast studios. The US at the end always confused me, maybe a little uncomfortable. Sounds like we're hoarding 3DL vaccine for the United States, but the US is uh, for undergraduate science, in case you were confused like I was. Hey, Becky. Hi. Our guest today, uh, he is he lives down there in the tropics by you, right? He does, southern Michigan. Actually, southeast Michigan, Ann Arbor. We're Ann Arbor buddies, mm. me and Ryan. I had an idea that maybe you just could go interview him face-to-face. You know, you can wear a mask and hazmat suit, whatever makes you comfortable outside. That would be so great. It would have been, we should, well, the sound would have been all off because we would have been outside and. I got it figured out. You just transcribe the whole thing. Then you fold it up and mail it to me. And then I will, um, I'll put it into like a deep fake audio app type thing. So it'll sound like you guys again. And then we'll Ooh. put it back up. <laughs> oh, but that does remind me. I have an excellent um, Bob Ross deep fake to share with you and maybe with the listeners too, if they oh. want to see it. It's a very excellent commercial. Uh, you've seen the Tom Cruise one, right? Mm, no. Oh, you got to check that out. It's funny. All right. Enough of this, Becky. We're going to talk to our buddy, Ryan. Let's go see if we can okay. find him. Yay. <laughs> Hi, my name is Ryan Sweeter, and I feel motivated by three-dimensional learning. Mm. Hey, Ryan, thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. You and Becky, are, are you're like doppelgangers, except well, you don't look like each other, but you're, well, so you're nothing like doppelgangers. <laughs> but I have a list that I've extensively researched and compiled. You both live in the Ann Arbor area. You're both um, recovering chemists with interest in chemical education. Wow, but then it gets harsh. even like it gets even more like um, tangled up in that. You both had the same grad school advisor, according to Becky. Um, yeah, I probably would have told you the same thing though, too. So it's not just her. <laughs> you both drive or used to drive the same car. Did what? Did you ride share or? No, I copied. I copied Ryan. Mm. I copied Ryan's Chevy Volt. What can I say? Okay. I, I had the idea first in this case, but she got to ride it a few times because we would drive to campus periodically together. Yeah. Oh, you got to it's test it out. Cool. Then there's the hub and seismic, and we're going to try to talk about those things today. So um, I don't, did we even have to bother you to come in today? Could Should we just talk to Becky and she could tell us what you would say? No, the I other was, way around. I, would, I don't know. I was kind of wondering that. I figured this mostly would just be an interview with Becky, and I would actually learn how to do my job more effectively. So. Oh, please. <laughs> Please. I was just saying today that in Slack, I need, in multiple occasions today in Slack, I've needed a head shakes emoji. And I, that's what I, that's what I'm doing right now. Listeners, head shake. Use the face palm. I was trying to think if we had anything in common. I mean, we're both kind of tall. We're not like where people stare at us, but we're both probably like usually the tallest person in the room. That counts as something, right? How, <laughs> how tall are you, Ryan? Uh, six three. Although maybe I'm right. shrinking as I get older. I don't know how that works. <laughs> What about you, Paul? <laughs> um, if I get a little boost, I can say 6'3". I think I, I'm not quite 6'3", but pretty much the same. Um, so you're 6'2". 
Maybe six one. We'll see. Almost. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I want to figure out something else we have in common, but because your Becky list is so long, I feel left out. Yeah, maybe we should keep going. Like, there's probably some like, I don't know, like composting or or like rain barrel usage. Oh I yes, I, I use that too. I don't know if you have one, so I do. You know, in five years or. 10 years, it'll pay itself off. <laughs> I already had to buy a second one. The first one broke. <laughs> oh, well. I think it, it paid it paid himself off faster if you direct it into a whiskey still. <laughs> so, Ryan, you're a full-blown professor in, uh, in what's something called Lyman Briggs College at Michigan State. So congratulations on that, sir. Thank you. That means you're pretty much retired, right? Uh, I feel like I'm close to that, or I feel like I'm getting into whatever the next phase of life is. They always talk about like a second mountain, so I got to figure out what that looks like or where one's heading. What's the first mountain? Usually your first career and what you're doing, and then the second mountain is like how you give back to the world and all that kind of stuff in many cases. You make me wonder what I've been doing with my life. Thanks for Creating podcasts. What else is there to do? (laughs) That's cool. I like thinking about that. So you, you got you got a lot going on, um, but before we talk about specifics, um, I wonder if you could share your process, if it exists, or if you know what it is, for how you decide um, what you engage with professionally, because it, it seems like your process is pretty much just say yes, but I'm wondering if there's more to it than that. Um, no, that's about, I think, 80% of it is just to say yes to the opportunities that come up. Mm. No, but more seriously than that, I think one of the big things that has driven me is just to figure out and do the things that I want to do. So things that I find interesting, I try to go after and figure out ways to make happen or just grab onto the opportunities that come up and, and be, be present enough to recognize when such opportunities do exist. So I sort of had to find an umbrella under which to put it. And so, you know, I end up start looking at the undergraduate STEM student experience and really trying to say, that's my broad umbrella for my research and a lot of the activities that I want to do. So I want to figure out how to better understand that experience and how to improve it for students. I didn't know I was going to, I should have brought like a notepad today. I like these little ways to talk about things. Be present enough near second mountain. (laughs) You mentioned this when we were talking before we hit record, but you identify it kind of first or you prioritize teaching first, but you also um, identify as both a chemical education researcher and as some, we could call what we could call a student success researcher. And I wonder if you could like paint us a picture or draw us a verbal Venn diagram for how those two things are interact and are related to each other? You know, those are really the two different halves of my broad research effort. For me, the student success is really a much more broad category. And it's looking at the overall undergraduate student experience and trying to understand what are the factors that help students run through the gauntlet and hopefully earn a degree at the end of the day, at the end of the day. The chemistry education research, on the other hand, really focuses on understanding how the teaching and learning of chemistry happens within the context of sort of the classroom or class type activities and is more focused on that process. Now, one of the places where I find that they really overlap, though, between the ChemEd research and student success can really be in the world of affective experiences for the students, really looking at their self-confidence, self-identity, and sense of belonging. A lot of those pieces can really be um, addressed from either of the two directions. Do you think you like one more than the other? Or they're just sort of different aspects of uh, in thinking about ChemEd, something that's more focused on chemistry content or student success, do you like, do you jump at one more than the other? Do you ignore emails related to one more than the other? 
I mostly just ignore emails related to Paul, but that's now, what I would say is I get excited about each in different ways. So I have a pretty strong mathematical background, and I find that a lot of my student success research or the programmatic assessment often involves more of that. So it's, it's quantitative. It's looking at big numbers of students and those kinds of things. And so I really enjoy that, and it feels like something that I have more personal confidence in. Some of the more qualitative stuff that ends up coming into that, I will freely admit that I often feel a little bit less comfortable in in doing myself. The ChemEd research, you know, I, I got into this because I really enjoy teaching and I wanted to teach first and trying to figure out how to do it better and do it more thoughtfully. Those get me excited too. But I will admit in both cases, I will probably say I'm more enthusiastic when I'm working with people who I enjoy working with. That's something that helps drive me. And so it's that connection to others and, you know, not wanting to disappoint them and really engage with other people intellectually. Those are the things that drive me a lot more than, you know, wanting to just work on some problem on my own and try to make some grand, you know, revelation about how we can improve teaching or something like that. So if you put your chem ed hat on, maybe um, the internet says that you study methods for increasing the learning in undergraduate general chemistry classes. And here's the part that I think sounds interesting, using out of class activities. So that sounds, that kind of perks me up. Does that mean you expect your students to Think about your class after they leave lecture hall or lab. How do you get them to do that? Are you suggesting that most classes don't have all their students constantly thinking about the content all the time? <laughs> One of my current research projects focuses on trying to really understand how students use simulations and how to make that a um, little bit more effective. And so what we've been doing is really trying to test uh, some different ways to present those to students and have them do them as what you know, pre-class activities. So before they walk mm -hmm. into the classroom, and there's a number of advantages to that if we can get the students to do it, which is then the students can take the amount of time that they need to really engage with it. And then when we come back into the classroom, we can now build on that because all those students have a common experience that they can relate to. And so you can pull up, you know, the, the simulation and then you can talk about it. Or you can talk about the students' findings and what did they discover as they were doing this. Yeah, plus not, not only there, some students see different amounts of time to do it, but some people need different, you know, kind of marinating times um, on things that are hard to just sit with them for a while. Mm -hmm. Debbie and I have also done some work where we actually use text messages to engage students with follow-up content. So after they've gone through the class and they've learned some new topic, you know, we would send them a text message that sends them off to a Google form to ask a, a challenging application, a three-dimensional question, where they have to now go and try to actually apply their understanding that they picked up. But then that becomes a great opportunity for the students to re-engage with the content at a later time point, and then gives us something, a, me a way to really assess like, how well did the students pick this up and use that as a driver for the next class period. So again, that would be another example of sort of an out-of-class activity. Yeah. At least until they block your number. <laughs> uh, you know, they might do that, but we also run it through a remind app, so they're not getting my personal cell phone number, so that's kind of helpful. Okay, um, I hope you don't mind if we spend uh, some time talking about the student success uh, stuff and its possible relationship to 3DO. We've had lots of chemists on here trying to dumb down chemistry for me. Let me see if I got it. Scalar level down and breaking bonds does not release energy, right? <laughs> did, I, yeah. did I just pass? Did I just pass those, those are important things. You got to make sure you have that. So, 
Ryan, do you have you have one child? You have a son, right? I do, yes. So if you could if you could pick one educational outcome that you could predetermine for for him, what would it be? So I feel like that's a little bit of a loaded question. Of course, I would want all of them to to, to be there. But mm-hmm. I would really say the one that I would most want him to learn is to be a problem solver. Right now, I see him more as a sponge. You know, he absorbs information. He's able to regurgitate it. But I think it's a lot harder to figure out how do you sort of solve problems and how do you take that information and use it? Um, can you put a number? Can, how, do you, how do you know if he's a problem solver? I think you you have to watch someone. You have to see how do they interact with novel situations? How do they engage with um, uncertainty? And how do they make decisions? And, and what are the results of that? I feel like I, I know my kids are problem solvers when they use all the scotch tape in the house. <laughs> I feel like mine are always solving are solving some kind of problem when they get quiet for more than you know a few minutes <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't always want to know what it is but they're doing mm-hmm. something did you say solving or causing problems <laughs> <laughs> yes um, okay you, you, you've kind of casually tossed around 3DL um, and maybe this is implicit but what is our kind of theory for why we think that 3DL might make some of those outcomes better for more students. How do, how do you think about that? So is the question, do we have a formal theory or just ways that I think that it might actually play out? Because I think I could answer the second one a lot easier. Yeah. I, I don't, nobody wants to hear about a formal theory anyway. Good. Because um, <laughs> I don't know <laughs> that I have one for you. I'll be honest. I don't um, think the team has one anyway, right? No, yeah. At least not a new one anyway. I was trying to get Ryan to do it for us. <laughs> no, I think that there's a lot to it. And so I think, you know, the core thing that I sort of recognize that's really different about 3DL is that you have the students actually engaging in the science practices, right? They are doing things. And I think that's one of the things that 3DL really allows us to do. It both gives the students the handle and the ways to be able to provide explanations and whether that's the construction of explanations or whether that's mathematical thinking and the mathematical reasoning component or even using a model right when you have this model of the atom and you try to explain you know why x y or z happens you really start to find out whether you can or not and when you get all those pieces that align when you have you know a model or the reasoning and it all lines up or it doesn't that actually is really informative to the student and i think that's something that comes out a lot really when the students are doing three-dimensional learning. And that's often what I think was missing when we think about situations that aren't three-dimensional, is that a lot of times the students are maybe able to get the right answer, right? They can do the algorithmic thing, but at the end of the day, maybe they don't know what that, you know, what an equilibrium expression means, but they can't appreciate the value of why one would need this or want this information. Mm. I feel like I'm really like, but these, so I've got, you know, an outline of what we're going to talk about. I feel like I'm really going uh, going after Ryan. I didn't mean to do this. Like, <laughs> I've given you these questions that I, I would be like, I don't know, a little leery about trying to answer. So I'm going to do, do another one. <laughs> theory, another theory question. <laughs> so I'm going to take that one kind of and make it more um, explicit and specific around one thing. So one outcome, you know, one thing that you can track is something that's called the DFW rate, although the D is... Uh, controversial as to what that stands for. And the F. Uh, oh, I didn't. What's what's the controversy there? Well, 
I, I've seen it. So some people refer to D grades, F grades and withdraws and other people say mm -hmm. drops, fails, withdraws. I guess if fail always means F grade. I don't it know. It means not passing. Right? Yeah. So, yeah. Anyway. Yes. It's not, it's not something, it's not, we, we don't want lots of them. <laughs> so we do, we know that more students are passing certain courses that have been quote transformed at Michigan State um, than they were before in a more quote, <laughs> traditional environment, um, like a lot more students, hundreds a semester. And so there, there's lots of reasons why that might be the case. And so my question is, how can we be sure that 3DL has anything to do with it? So I think the short answer is just based on one class or two, I don't know that you can inherently come to that conclusion. I think that's something that a longer, more systematic process would would be required to tell you, right? Because you could obviously get every student to pass a class if you wanted to. It would be pretty easy, right? You just give everyone, right. you know, a 2.0 or higher grade. In many ways, sort of the proof is in the pudding, right? What happens in that next class? If we just sort of pass students and kick the can down the road and then they fail out of the next class, there really is no advantage to that. But if you've actually transformed the class and you've taken, um, for example, in chemistry, it can often be taught essentially as a math class where you don't have to have a lot of chemistry understanding. But if you change it so you are actually evaluating people on the chemistry, it wouldn't be surprising that you would change dramatically the students who are able to be successful in that particular class. And then what you hope is that when they go into the next class, they continue to maintain that success. Now, obviously, that's a challenge if that next class goes back to really just requiring you to do, uh, do, do mathematics, for example. But I think the key about a lot of the transformed classes is that we're just trying to get the students to do the things that we want someone who completes this class to be able to do. And so the transformation is actually often trying to transform the assessments to be more reflective of what we think a student should be able to do that might actually be long-term use of it, as opposed to, cool, you were able to calculate a number, but you know, very rarely will students go on and just have to do lots of calculations. Um, usually what we want them to walk away from, from almost all of our courses are the conceptual understanding. And that's what a lot of the, the transformed courses tend to focus on a little bit more um, because that's where you need to be able to do those science practices. Okay. So, so, so far the argument is if they do, if they do well in the, in the subsequent classes that we know we're doing more than just passing them along, or that's mm -hmm. consistent with the idea that we're, do that we're doing more than just passing them along. Mm -hmm. Right. Yep. Um, for me, at least when it to, to pointing to 3DL as the, um, driver of it is still a stretch. I, I haven't asked a question yet. I know I'm, and I'm just thinking in front of you guys right now. No, no. And I think that's useful um, because I think what that gets at, right, is the difference between sort of anecdotal evidence and mm -hmm. more robust and comprehensive evidence. Doing something successfully once at one place, I don't think gets at the idea of, yep, look, we've done something that's amazing here with 3DL. And I think what ends up happening is that 3DL will build up its successes in multiple different disciplines and at multiple different institutions. And that's what then allows you to be able to better assert that 3DL is the important factor. Mm -hmm. And that I think becomes what's really important is mm -hmm. to show that, you know, 3DL isn't clue chemistry. It's not P cubed. It's not a reformed biology class. What it is, is it's a way of actually approaching teaching and learning 
And that way of approaching teaching and learning is more likely to have the kinds of long lasting learning that we're shooting for students to walk away with. 3DL does a huge part of the heavy lifting, but there are certainly other components of any course that are important for figuring out if a student's mm -hmm. going to be successful in that course or in a subsequent course. So I see something like the three dimensions or, you know, other kinds of big sort of curriculum frameworks as in general pulling in the same direction. Mm -hmm. All right. We mentioned before that you got your fingers in a whole bunch of pies. Hope you wash your hands a lot. I guess um, I could speak entirely in acronyms for a minute that only a few people would understand. So LB, seismic, hub. Oh, wait. Is hub? Hub's not an acronym, is it? Hub is, is not hub an, an acronym. acronym. Thank the Lord. <laughs> uh, we can, make, we, can we make one? No, no, I'm sorry. sure somebody could. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I've got questions about those, all those things. We may not have time to talk all of them. But, well, let's talk about the hub. So the hub is a, it's a Michigan State thing. Um, yeah, what is it? In my mind, it's just a big open office space. It's made out of lots of concrete um, and lots of sticky notes. That's how I think of it. But yeah, I think that's it. about right. Um, I, I'm actually wondering. I I could almost say I think Becky could probably answer this question better than I can. But I, I will take my shot, and then I'll let Becky correct anything that I get wrong. But really, you know, my impression is that they're the educational wing of the administrative effort. Um, it's essentially a catch-all location that tries to do all the things that faculty or departments sort of wish the university would actually do. Um, some examples of that have been that they stood up a lot of the online instructional training that MSU held over the last year to prepare for the summer and the fall courses. They help colleges and departments build online programs, um, not necessarily the content part of it, but a lot of the delivery stuff that's required for that. They're working on developing a centralized learning assistant um, program um, that really focuses on hiring and training and a lot of that kind of stuff. They also kind of act as a startup location for ideas such as Science Gallery, which was, you know, this innovative space to try to show the relationship between art and science and has had some uh, wonderful examples. And so I'm currently having a joint appointment in the hub because of my role as the MSU director for Seismic. Um, and so we may talk about that, but that's a, a research effort um, supported by the Sloan Foundation that's really trying to improve DEI in STEM. And that's something that's just kind of gotten housed there as best I can tell, uh, in part because then it gives more access to the administration and trying to help create administrative types of changes that might improve uh, DEI and STEM, which is diversity, equity, and inclusion. Those are excellent. Becky, are the, are the, chair, are the chairs even concrete in there? <laughs> no. no, I'm sure they roll, come on. No, the chairs, no, the chairs are naturally uh, like some crazy Herman Miller, like super special <laughs> chair design that like Jeff Grable really loves. And to his credit, they are very comfortable. As some people know, I'm basically working like kind of half in my bathroom. So I'm working at like <laughs> this, like, but I'm sitting at this kind of like counter height thing. That chair you're at now is called a toilet, Becky. I don't know no, no that's just terrible. Yeah. I don't oh. think anybody cares about the hub chairs anyways. That's my fault. <laughs> <laughs> they probably don't, um, just Jeff. Um, but then, then you mentioned like one of the one of the really best acronyms out there, seismic, although it's kind of a slant acronym, right? They kind of just like skip some letters just to make seismic work. <laughs> <laughs> I think that um, was I a strategic if, move. It's kind of, if you leave in the letters though, it's 
it's it almost still works. It's um, systemic. It's almost like systemic, but I don't know. Seismic is cooler. Maybe that's so, seismic. Um, seismic 2.0 is systemic. <laughs> Noted. Um, maybe to lead us into what seismic is, let's let's act like it, it's a person. If seismic were were a person, how how would she talk about 3DL? Sure. You know, I, I appreciate the creativity of your questions, Paul. So that's really helpful. So I really think that Seismic would be excited about spending more time with 3DL, specifically many of the disparities that Seismic has sort of identified that are truly systemic. The racial, the, some of the gender disparities or attitudinal issues. These are things that 3DL could actually really help to address. The work that Ryan Stowe and Melanie Cooper, for example, have been doing really shows the great improvement that we can see in terms of getting all students to succeed, right? And we've talked a little bit about that, that earlier in terms of more students are able to pass those classes. Um, mm -hmm. One of the great things that 3DL does is it sort of decouples that chemistry and math link and then allows people to succeed by making, really allowing us just to measure who's able to do science, which I think is really what we want, and then to support students in the process of learning that. So I don't want to make it sound like it's a fixed set of whether or not you can do that. And so I think that's where the power of 3DL is, is because you're doing science, you actually begin to believe that you can do science. So I think, you know, Seismic would be super excited about what 3DL has to offer and would really want to spend a lot more time together and, you know, maybe go on a date or two, who knows? Mm. <laughs> Seems like our little 3DL group is, you know, this big. And if this wasn't a podcast, you'd see what I'm doing. And then, you know, the, the hub is bigger, but the seismic is really a huge thing. It's, um, it's across a whole bunch of universities. A lot, I don't know, you guys can tell me, but it's a bunch of big 10 schools and, and others. Um, how Becky or Ryan and Ryan, how did it come together? How did it come uh, take its form like that? Yeah, I think I can, I can share a little bit about that. So, um, the way I tell the story is that, um, there is a faculty member at uh, University of Michigan named Tim McKay. He had started to notice some uh, gendered patterns in his um, physics courses probably more than a decade ago now. And he looked at them in a lot of different ways and he was born and bred in astrophysics. So he was very, you know, facile with quantitative data, was, had a lot of ideas about big data sets. And so, you know, student, records data are one version of a big data set. And so he looked at some interesting patterns or troubling patterns really um, in a bunch of different ways and basically started to ask like, who else sees this? You know, where, where else does this happen? Does it happen elsewhere? Are we unique? Are we not unique? He uh, started um, a group or got together a group of institutions across the big 10 to try to ask that question a little bit more pointedly. Like, does this kind of question replicate or does this kind of pattern replicate across mm -hmm. other institutions? And if so, what can we do about it? And that's where MSU's involvement initially came in. So I helped a lot with that, um, that project, trying to reproduce those data and those patterns or trying to see if the patterns reproduced at, at MSU. Are you ever going to tell us if they reproduce or not, Becky? You're leaving they us did. here. They did. Yeah, they did for sure. It was, um, yeah, the, the question about gendered performance differences, um, we looked at uh, a lot in this one, uh, this one paper. Um, and others have looked at it in lots of different ways since. So, and, and before as well. Actually, Ryan, mm. Ryan has a sort of a precursor, or Ryan has a paper that really, um, it does quite a lot of the same things um 
and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so. That was well stated uh, back then. I appreciate that. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. So anyway, um, the, you know, there was this effort to try to see if these patterns reproduced and they did. And, um, you know, and then we kind of all went our separate ways and different institutions tried to address. Some institutions didn't do anything. Some institutions did try to address those patterns. There were follow-on grants involved and Seismic is sort of a, another version of that collaboration that's bigger and better. Um, but it's focused not just around the question of does X pattern that I see reproduce at another institution. It's, mm -hmm. um, it's asking, I see Seismic is essentially asking how can we use institutional data to address issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion in foundational STEM courses. So Seismic has a much more um, central focus on equity than the project did before. And, you know, people in Seismic are, you know, they're trying to do the right thing. They're trying to, they're trying to get more students to have better experiences in, um, in these introductory courses. And it's hard and we're not you know, we're not doing it right all the time. Um, there's still a lot of ways that, you know, seismic is very white and doesn't highlight enough um, voices of colleagues of color, students of color. And so, you know, we have a lot, we, we all have a lot of learning to do still in seismic, but that's the goal broadly is to improve issues of DEI in foundational STEM courses. I think one of the things that I would add to that is it really started sort of from this qu quantitative aspect and really mm -hmm. trying to understand things. And it has since moved to trying to actually make change. Um, so it's less about like, hey, let's just define the problem space and what some of these inequities are to specific experiments that are trying to figure out ways to address it. Um, and so it's 10 different R1 institutions, all a part of the AAU. And then now it's also starting to try to partner with the AAU to say, hey, look, here's some of the really good stuff that we've been finding that happen at these 10 institutions. So good chances probably at your institution too. And here are some things that hopefully we're finding as ways to address them. It's also a place where, you know, people who are interested getting more people who are involved in having that um, common community to build on is also a really important piece. Mm -hmm. So has anything worked at all 10 places that should be pushed beyond these 10 schools? So what I would say is at this point, I don't know that we, we can answer that. Um, I think we're still at the point of trying more localized experiments um, from the experimental working group. You know, they're, they're still doing things that are happening at, let's say, two, three, four institutions. I'm still so mm -hmm. testing those on a smaller scale. It also acts as a place where we can share ideas. And so the speaker series, for example, is a wonderful thing where um, anyone who's interested at any institution, not just the ones who are partnered, could actually, you know, go to the Seismic website, figure out who the speakers are and go hear some of the cool things that are happening and use that as a way to be like, oh, here's a neat idea that's happening. Is that something that's relevant for us here? Probably, I think half people that listen to this um, Fast forward to the first and last five minutes, and then the other half only listen to the, <laughs> the first one. So, um, if you're if you're willing, well, we'll ask you some questions that may not be entirely on on topic. <laughs> okay, I want to ask uh, Ryan about the say the uh, Jeopardy question we just asked Aaron. So, if you were on Jeopardy, Ryan, what category would make you really happy to see? It can't be chemistry. I know nothing about anything else. 
<laughs> I, I don't know. And I'm not really claiming that I know that much about chemistry. So I think just about like volleyball. Random trivia. Like, I mean, how much is there about volleyball that's going to be on a, a Jeopardy thing? There's terminology there. Has anything ever happened to you that you can't explain? <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm not even sure how to answer that question, I will be honest. I haven't had weird experiences, so no um, ghost experiences that I've encountered, though I was just recently talking to someone who was quite convinced that um, they have had uh, those kinds of experiences in their life, and as someone who I respect and believe, but... Okay, Becky, should we ask some McDonald's or um, apoc- or zombies? Mm, I forgot the McDonald's one. Go, McDonald's, because I forgot okay, what so it is. If, I want to hear it. Um, would you rather um, hunt and gather all your food or only eat at McDonald's? Oh, clearly hunt and gather. That is, that's a <laughs> trivial question. <laughs> I don't even know why you asked that. <laughs> um, I haven't eaten McDonald's in years, and, and that's not to, to really try to ditch McDonald's too badly. I try to avoid most fast food places. Um, but I actually, I really enjoy, I've done gardening in the past, and I enjoy that. Um, I've taken my one of my classes mushroom hunting before. Um, and cool. so I was not the one who was leading it. There was someone else. But, like, you know, that being outside and being a hunter-gatherer, I could see that. Less excited about the hunting, more about the gathering. His idea first about the hunting and gathering. I don't know if he's. I don't know if he's uh, thought through the details yet. Beyond the garden, man, hunters, hunters and gatherers spent a lot less time, like actually getting the amount of food that they need. They had a lot more relaxation time in the world. So <laughs> maybe a little bit more dangerous in some cases, but yeah, you just shoot one bison and then you're good for a month. Mm-hmm. You gotta you gotta keep it somewhere or smoke it right away. I had to pick McDonald's because I would be dead in a few days, three days, approximately. <laughs> I have a question, but it's not. Well, it might be fun. Oh, or are you done? Do you it have it has to be fun. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I've been done, Becky. Fresh out. We know. My question <laughs> is, you mentioned this second mountain, and I want to know what you think your second mountain might be. Oh, that's a good question. Um. I don't know that I figured that out yet. And I'm still, I think, trying to sometimes figure out what my first mountain is. Um, I mean, I think it's improving student success in undergraduate STEM education. Like, um, mm-hmm. But there certainly are the times where one can just imagine wanting to pack up and just do something completely different. Or, you know, the other way to think about it a little bit might be, you know, going into administrative kind of stuff within the university and how can you move from being a classroom presence that helps your students in front of you to having the kind of influence and hopefully making the positive decisions that influence the directions of a university or a college or whatever that improve the the experience for thousands of students as opposed mm-hmm. to maybe the tens or hundreds that, that might be in front of you in any given semester. I thought for sure he was going to say mushroom gathering. <laughs> You know, that's a close second. Um, I, there's not as much money in it as you might think, um, <laughs> but I think there's a lot of sa- satisfaction. So depending on what you're looking for. Time will tell. Yeah. All right, Ryan, I, um, thank you very much for coming and hanging out. 
Thanks for dealing with my questions. I don't, I, I don't know. I, I, I really was, I felt, I feel kind of bad about them. <laughs> no, uh, you paused, you presented this early on in the whole process as Ryan was going to answer all the hard questions. Um, so this <laughs> is what right. I've been expecting the entire time. <laughs> um, all right, good. I forgot about, I forgot I laid the groundwork there. Yeah, I thought that was quite intentional. Or the you had no idea what topic to actually bring up with me, which I think is the more likely one. Um, like, what does that guy do? You're still trying to figure that one out early on in the process. So. Alphabet soup. Yep. A little of both. Thanks, Ryan. Yep.